0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, Happy New Year to you. It's great to be together. Um, I hear there's a lot of uh, sickness going around, so if you're watching online... Uh, we hope you get better and can join us soon. Thanks for joining us online. Uh, it is wonderful to start a new year together. And uh, to not, today, this morning, I'm going to speak on a, just a, a topic that is not on the book of Acts. Next week, we will get back to the book of Acts after our holidays uh, break. I want to speak on stewardship and coveting uh, old words for a new year. Now, on your New Year's theme bingo card, I guarantee you coveting was not on there, uh, what we would talk about to kick off the new year, but it's an important topic, and I hope to make that clear uh, shortly. The last few years, uh, I have preached a stewardship message to start the year. Last year, I actually did three, so we really, uh, we really jumped on it because we want to help everyone start the year off right. Now, usually when you hear the word stewardship, if you're a church guy, church gal, your background is church, you're thinking uh, giving, a building campaign is often called a stewardship campaign. But the reality is that while giving is important, uh, it's a very small part of the biblical theme of stewardship. Stewardship is rooted in the idea of ownership, it's an old word, Uh, it's not not one that you hear used too much today, Uh, but it has to do with ownership, and in the biblical idea of stewardship it has to do with the idea that God owns everything. God owns everything, and in the biblical time a steward was someone who managed the resources of another. And so the idea of stewardship is that God owns everything and that we manage all of the resources that he entrusts to us. Uh, that means our finances, that means our gifts and our abilities that he's given us. Uh, that means we are to manage our time. Uh, we are to uh, manage our opportunities, our homes, our relationships, certainly our jobs. We're to manage all of those things as given to us by the Lord, and we're to manage them for his glory and for the good of our neighbor. And so we really could say in a very real way that the entire Christian life is about stewardship. It's about being faithful with what God has given to us, and if we look at the parables of Jesus, he has several stories about stewardship, and they all make a singular point uh, or contain a singular idea, and that is a steward must give uh, account to the one who owns everything. The one that we manage for, we give an account to. And that's why I think at the first of the year, trying to set some kind of goals or resolutions about new year, new you, uh, ends pretty quickly. But the idea of stewardship is an enduring idea that maybe I'm going to focus in a couple of areas of faithfulness or maybe even a single area that I'm going to really focus on this year. But it is the idea that we are to faithfully use and manage what God has entrusted to us. And today, what I want to do is talk about a common barrier to stewardship. I think in our culture, it's one of the chief barriers to faithful stewardship, and it is the idea of coveting. Uh, The word covet, um, or the word coveting, or sometimes you see uh, the word covetousness. Um, it's not covetousness. Some people say that. It's not there's there's no they, they they think it's like righteousness, righteousness, covetousness, that's incorrect. There's an e in righteousness. It's R-I-G-H-T-E-O-U-S. Covetousness is T-O-U-S. There is no E there, and so you can lose the ch and just call it covetousness. We want you to sound biblically uh, astute. Even if you don't know anything about the Bible, at least, they at least say things right, and people you'll <laughs> fool a lot of people. Um, so, covetousness, uh, not covetousness. And to do that, I want to look at the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment. In, a- in Exodus 20, we get the 10 commandments. And I'm going to read the prologue to the 10 commandments, because it's very important. And then I'm going to skip commandments 1 to 9 and read to you verse 10. They don't have the prologue. I didn't give it to them, uh, so they don't have a slide. But we do have a slide for the 10th commandment. So here's the prologue. Of uh, This is uh, Exodus 20, verse 1. Listen to God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then, nine commandments... And then here we have this for you, the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, Covetousness is not something we talk much about either, but the, the word covet simply means desire. It's a neutral word. It's not a good word or a bad word. We use it positively sometimes. We say uh, in Christian jargon, I covet your prayers. What does that mean? I desire for you to pray for me about this you know, circumstance or situation, whatever it may be. So covet just means desire, but the context here makes it very clear that it's a bad desire. It's an evil desire. It it is a forbidden desire. It made the top 10 list, uh, so it's a a serious issue. It's a desire, we see here, for something that belongs to our neighbor. It's a desire for something that belongs to our neighbor. And this this urge, this compulsion, this desire uh, to covet is in all of us. And it's alive and well at church today. Now, in here, we mask it very well, so you won't be able to identify who's coveting at any given moment unless they come up and say, ooh, I love your shoes, wish I had those. Okay, well, maybe. But other than that, you're not going to really hear that. But where you will see coveting on full display is right back through that wall in the toddler class. (laughs) Here's how it works. Toddler A is seated on the floor with a toy about three feet, four feet, just out of reach from him or her. He has no interest in that toy, no desire for that toy, has seen the toy, but has not made any effort to go up and get that toy, does not want the toy. Toddler B walks over and picks up the toy and holds it in his or her hand, and instantly, toddler A must have that toy. No interest in that toy until someone else had that toy, and a breaking of the 10th commandment happens in that toddler's heart, which often leads to a breaking of the 8th commandment, stealing, by walking over and (laughs) grabbing the toy from toddler B. They don't mask it. They play real back in the the toddler class. Everything's real. We mask it, we fake it up in here. We've learned how to do that. Back there, it is real. And there is coveting on display. It starts at a very young age and lasts with us our whole lives. Now, that's kind of a funny story. But lest we think that coveting is just a mild thing, again, it's something God forbids. I mean, if you look at the things he just forbade before this, it was murder, adultery, stealing, lying, and then coveting. So it's obviously serious. It's a, it's a serious threat to our souls. As a matter of fact, it's so serious. This is what Jesus said in Luke 12. This isn't just an Old Testament idea. This is what Jesus said, Luke 12, 15. And he said to them, "'Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, "'for one's life does not consist "'in the abundance of his possessions.'" I think mean, this is a strong warning. It's a double warning. Watch out. Uh, is what is, we Here, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Um, the, and I read from the NIV. I'm sorry, I should have given you guys the NIV back there. I read from the NIV, and it says guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So be on guard. Watch out. Be alert. Being on guard is standing aware of imminent danger. So be on guard against this as it is pervasive and often subtle, as we'll see. So what I want to do is look back at the 10th commandment, and I want to look at two different aspects of the 10th commandment. The first is what is forbidden. We're going to break it down, walk through the verse. And then secondly, I want to talk about what is required, because all of the commandments have an implicit requirement. It's not just in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. It's not just enough to not worship other gods. Negatively, don't worship other gods. Positively, worship the true God. Uh, So they all have a positive implication, and we'll look at what's the positive implication of not coveting. And then at the end, I'll come back and say, didn't you say this is about stewardship? I'll show you how I believe they connect together. So first of all, what is forbidden? Well, we must understand coveting in reference to God. If we only think of it horizontally, like I want what that person has, I want their car, then it can feel uh, like not really that big a deal. It doesn't really rank up there with stealing and lying and that sort of thing. But when we examine our hearts in light of God's sovereignty, we see that this is really a sobering issue. Because to covet means to be dissatisfied with what God has provided you. It means to be dissatisfied in God's provision, and it means to desire something that he has provided for someone else. It is to think, I want that. I need that. It is to think, "I," and oftentimes it's so subtle, we don't even put it in these terms, but it is to think, I would be happy if only, if only I had that. At its root, coveting is ungratefulness to God. To want what my neighbor has means my eyes are off what God's provided me. My eyes are on someone or something else, and I I am not grateful towards God. I'm actually grumbling. I'm complaining in my soul against God. If God is sovereign and if God leads our lives through his providence, then I am grumbling, and I'm really saying to God, when I say I want what he has or what she has, what I'm really saying to God is, you have not been good to me, and I need you to give me something different. I need you to give me something better. What you have provided is not enough. It's not enough. And that's why coveting is such a serious thing, because coveting is really a failure to value the goodness of God. If God is always good and God is sovereign, then what He has given me or provided me in life is good. And even the difficulties I encounter, even the lack what I lack in life, God will use those things for my good and for his glory. So I always know that God is acting in a good way uh, for me. He knows what is best. I don't often know what is best. So let's look at the commandments, desiring what God has given someone else, which is a denial of being satisfied in what God has given me. It's a denial in the goodness of God uh, in my situation. Now, this commandment, it is convicting in its specificity. Uh, God does not tell Moses here. He does not just say, generally, don't desire other stuff. He's very particular, very specific. Now, things that aren't on the list can still be objects of our coveting. But he gives some interesting ones that I think through time have endured as challenges for humanity. What does he say first of all? He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not be discontent with where you live. The apartment you live in, the dorm you live in, the house you live in, um, the room you live in. You shall not be discontent with where you live. And this is especially tempting in an area uh, like North Texas where we live, Frisco and surrounding communities, because the standard is so high here. It's so unrealistic. If you look at the rest of the world today and all of the world throughout history, we are at the very top of dwellings in which people live. This is a wealthy area. And so we can so subtly just take the standard of everything that's around us and make that our our measurement for what we need, for what we deserve for for what we really must have to be happy. And we can look around and think, man, if I had that house, life would be different. For those of us who are renters, we may covet home ownership which seems so far out of reach in our area over recent years as things have gone up. So it may not be a particular house, it may be the American dream. It may be what we covet is owning a home, and that stirs us. That is an issue of discontent for us because God has not provided that at this time. As homeowners, we can covet different house, more space. We can covet a different neighborhood. I don't like my neighbors or the neighborhood. I, I want to be in a better neighborhood. And the command would obviously go beyond the dwelling itself. It would include the contents, would it not? Not just the dwelling, but when you walk into your neighbor's house, what do you see? Their kitchen, which is way better than your kitchen. Their appliances, which are way newer than your appliances, and they work The playoffs are starting, Uh, it's their TV. You're watching on a computer screen or on a small TV and they're they're like at the game on the field with their TV. You walk in their house and they've got extra rooms, rooms you don't have, rooms you didn't even know existed. (laughs) You're working from home on your bed and they've got an office bigger than your family room. They've got extra rooms, I need extra rooms. Look at their furniture. Look at their landscaping. Look at their decor. I just like the style of their house. It's just just the style of it. Man, I like that. I love their garage. I love their tools. I love their outdoor living area. And the problem is that we imagine a different house would equal a different life. If I had a different house, if, if I wasn't in an apartment... If I wasn't in this small house, if I owned a house, if I had their interest rate, they bought four or five years ago, life would be great for me, but I can't get in the market now. And we think a different house means a different life. And so in light of that, how convicting is Philippians 4 where Paul writes from the pit of a first century jail which is not a modern prison in the US. He is perhaps in chains. He is perhaps not getting enough food. He is perhaps in the dark. He is in a very difficult situation when he writes from prison, the book of Philippians, and in there says, "'I have learned to be content whatever Circumstances. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. And Paul is saying something that is foreign to us. Many of us, even as believers, this is foreign that I could be in this struggling, difficult circumstance, and yet I find myself as content in my soul as if I had everything. Why? Because I can live by the strength of Christ. He's saying that with Christ's strength, I can be content. And I think we could add, I can not only be content, but I can rejoice with my neighbor who appears externally more blessed than I. I can be content with what I have, and I can rejoice with you in what you have. That's the power of Christ that many of us don't tap into, don't even consider, don't even think it's a problem. Well, it's not just houses. Look what he says next, that you're not to desire, verse 17 again, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife. Covet your neighbor's wife. This would apply to your neighbor's husband as well, ladies. He mentions wife, but it's either You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's spouse, we could say, as well. Now, this would include not coveting your neighbor's spouse sexually. But really, the seventh commandment, don't commit adultery, addresses that. And Jesus teaches that to desire another person that you're not sexually, that you're not married to, you've committed adultery in your heart, is what Jesus says. So the heart issue of lust uh, certainly could be included here with coveting your neighbor's spouse, but probably is more specifically addressed with uh, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. This one is far more subtle. It's the belief that my life would be better or different categorically in my soul if I had a spouse or, if you're married, if I had a different spouse. If I had a different spouse. Ladies, you can think this way. So can the men. I'll talk to them in a second. But you can think this way in your mind. I would be happy if my husband treated me like he treats her. Then I'd be happy. I would be happy if my husband was romantic like her husband is, at least from what's revealed in the date night pictures on Instagram. If he was romantic like that staged picture, <laughs> then I would be happy. Maybe he really is that romantic. I don't know. I don't know him. It's, it, it's, a, <laughs> it's not a personal illustration, but uh, yeah. So, like him. Do you see what's happening here? It's, a, it's this comparison. It's this desire. It may not be the raw lust of do not commit adultery in your heart. It's something more, it's more acceptable in our minds, but no less acceptable to God. I, I would really be happy if my husband took an interest in our kids like he takes in his kids. I would really be happy if my husband led our family spiritually like her husband leads her family. I would really be happy if my husband made an income like he makes. I would really be happy if my husband uh, took care of our house like he takes care of their house, doing everything for her and his kids. I would be happy if he would communicate with me like that man communicates with his wife. You know, I would just be happy if my husband was available like he is available. What would life be like married to him or someone like him? You shall not covet your neighbor's spouse. Husbands have similar thoughts. If my wife was just supportive like his wife is, it would go so well. My life would be so great. If my wife looked like his wife looks, took care of herself like his wife does, if my, if my wife acted like his wife, if my wife was successful like his wife, if my wife was less nagging, just like his wife uh, is to him, then life would be great. If my wife was organized, like his wife, if my wife was thrifty like his wife, if my wife was just fun like she is, every time we're with them, she's fun. She's easygoing. She's not tied up in knots, worried about everything. If my wife was like that, then we could go places. Things could happen in our life. If my wife wasn't argumentative like his wife is not argumentative, if my wife was more interested in intimacy like someone else's wife probably is, then life would be much better. What would it be like to be married to her or someone like her? Now, Scripture's not saying that we can't appreciate or learn from other people and their gifts, their character. It's not saying that we can't even respect other people's um, you know, co- character, their qualities, but it's very different to respect someone rather than to desire that person or even to wade into imagining life with that person or someone like that person. This isn't restricted to marriage. Single people can equally desire someone else's spouse. It can happen to singles, obviously, as well. The problem is we all tend to think that life would be better if we just had another person in our lives or a different person in our lives. And so we are deluded into the idea of thinking that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence because of who they're with, because the person that's on the other side of the fence. If that person was on this side of the fence, life would be better. I love it that someone said regarding marriage, the grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. It's greener wherever you water it. And for every moment I'm looking over the offense at him or her, it's a moment I'm not watering my own grass and taking care of the relationship God has given me and stewarding with gratitude the person that he's provided for me. Well, it's not just the house or the spouse, he includes work here as well. Now when we read this initially, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey. You may have felt that's one command I'm 100% on. I have never desired someone else's ox. (laughs) I can't say I've upheld the other 10 commandments, but that one. You got me on the house, you got me on the spouse, I'm good on the ox, okay? (laughs) Well, what is the ox and the donkey? It certainly represents another's possessions. Uh, In a agricultural environment, depending on the number of oxen, or the number of donkeys, it could represent status. It could be coveting someone else's status, it could be coveting their possessions, their wealth, but ultimately, the ox and the donkey are tied to work. That's how you do your work. You, you, uh, you work in the fields with the ox. You, you use the donkey as a beast of burden to carry things. And so, this is very relevant to us. Um, the, the, the male servant and female servant today might be comparable to someone's employee's if I had employees, life would be different. If I was in charge of this place, then I would be happy. Get me some employees to help out. If I had someone else's job, my problem is I don't have a job. Ben must be nice to have that job. If I had that job, I'd be happy. If I had that career, if I had their staff, life would be great. If I had the opportunities she has in the workplace, I would be happy. If I had the responsibilities, if I had the sales territory that he has, then life would be so different. Don't you see that? If I had their salary, if I had their boss, if I had their clients, if I had their co-workers, if I had their office, if, if, if I want that, then I would be happy. And if that's not broad enough, The last phrase of the command is just the catch-all. His ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. If you skirted by on these previous ones, then this is the catch-all. If you desire anything that belongs to your neighbor, I mean, the list is endless. It is endless, is it not? We wish we had someone else. We wish we had something else I'd be happy if I had their clothes, their money, their retirement plan, their technology, their car, their health. If I just had health, if I had their health, life would be great. We can covet intangible things, can we not? If I just had her intelligence, if I had his personality, if I had his sense of humor, her popularity, his gifts, his abilities, anything that is your neighbor's is what God says. If you are looking at that and desiring that, rather than watering your own grass, rather than stewarding the personality God's given you, rather than stewarding the intelligence God's given you and seeking to learn and grow as you can, rather than doing the best you have to be faithful with what God has entrusted, we compare, we contrast, and we desire what someone else has. Anything you can see or anything you can imagine is a potential target of coveting. We buy into the lie. If I had that, then I'd be okay. But when we get that, we're still not okay because that cannot make you okay. If you get that, you're just a coveter with more stuff and that's arguably worse because now you're ungrateful when God has provided more and your heart cries more, different. So sometimes it's even worse to get what we want and still not be satisfied. What is required by this commandment? Well, I've sort of alluded to it already. What is commanded by this commandment, is don't desire what your neighbor has, but be content with what you have, just as Paul said in Philippians 4. Be content, and not just content, but content in God. See, this is something that only comes by the power of the Spirit for a Christian, to be content in the work of Christ and the provision of of Christ for you. This is what author John Piper said about covetousness. He said, covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. That's what it is. It's a dissatisfaction with God and believing the lie that I need that over there. The problem is not with our wanting People and things too much. It's with not wanting God enough. That's the problem in our souls, is that we don't want God enough, and so we are easily dissatisfied. And this is really the root of the first sin, is it not? What is the first sin that Eve commits? Well, she became convinced that she didn't have enough when she had everything. She had perfection, but it wasn't enough. I need that. And she and Adam ate of the tree. The reality is when we are satisfied in God, when we're satisfied in his provision in those moments and those seasons, well, we're not at the same time coveting what someone else has. We're not coveting their spouse, their possessions, their abilities, their career, their situation in life. Because God's good plan for you is better than what they have. Now, why do I say that? Because God's good plan for you is for you to know him and experience him such that you could say, I know the secret of being content in all circumstances. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the secret, Paul says. So it is knowing God, it is finding my satisfaction in him, and secondarily, what he has provided for me, such that I enjoy that, I Use that for his glory. I steward that. The good gift of God is not more stuff. Things that God's provide are gifts. But the ultimate gift is not the gifts provided. It's the giver himself. That's the ultimate gift. That's the secret of the whole thing is that it is Christ that we have. And when we have him, we have everything. And so God wants us to be filled with his spirit, to be empowered by his word, to be sustained by his grace so that we live more consistently as people who are content. We'll never reach that perfectly until we see him face to face, and we'll see, wow, all that other stuff was nothing. So we battle this from the nursery to the graveyard but we can grow progressively in greater contentment so that we can say with the psalmist who says in psalm 73:25 whom have i in heaven but you and there is nothing on earth that i desire besides you man that is a goal for 2024 that is a goal hey lose a few pounds go to the gym, balance your budget, I'm all for all that. But to say, you are everything to me, to be able to move increasingly towards that posture of heart, well, that's a glorious, that's a glorious pursuit. Okay, how does this relate to stewardship? Because I said I got a message for you about stewardship, I do it every January, and now I've gone on for almost the entire message about coveting. How do they Relate. Well, here's how they relate, I believe. Satisfaction in Christ is the foundation for stewardship. Contentment in God prepares me to thank God for what I have, to thank God for who He is and what He's done, and to begin to focus on what He's entrusted me with so that I can use all of the intangible gifts and abilities He's given me and all the tangible. Uh, possessions and relationships that he's entrusted to me, I can begin to steward and use those for his glory and for the good of my neighbor as one who will give an account, not for what someone else has, but will give an account for what I have, what he's entrusted to me. We will never manage our resources faithfully as we, as long as we are desiring the resources of another person. Stewardship is faithfulness on my side of the fence. That's what it really is. Stewardship is, first of all, saying, okay, what's within my fence? It doesn't mean it can't change. It doesn't mean you don't work hard and try to progress in your career. Absolutely. But there's a contentment along the way. It's, I don't have to have that to be happy. I'm happy where I am, but I want to steward the gifts and the abilities God's given me and make the biggest impact that he would allow me to make. So I'm not talking about Contentment's not like, "Hey, I, I have no goals, no ambitions, I don't want to improve, I don't want to grow." No, not at all. It's "I want to be faithful to do everything God has given me, but it's looking within my fence, right here, not over the fence, over there, and saying, "I what has God entrusted to me? I want to steward that faithfully." This is especially true with finances. I believe this is really true with finances, that contentment is the starting place for stewarding our finances. Listen, you can get on a budget this year. I hope you do. Uh, you can cut back on some spending. I hope you do. But if you do not deal with the heart desire of coveting what other people have, that will not work. It will not work. I think the probably the number one cause of consumer debt in the U.S., I'm not talking about like medical debt or something like that, consumer debt. I believe the number one cause of consumer debt in the U.S. is coveting. It's I can't afford this right now. I don't have the resources. God has not given me the resources, but I can slide a card, now I can just tap a card, and I can have it now and worry about paying for it another time. I don't have to wait for that experience. I can tap a card and have that experience now. I don't have to have this, which I could afford, this vehicle which I could afford, or this whatever that I could afford. I can get bigger and better by just tapping a card and figuring it out later. We can have the vacation now and worry about paying it later. What what it actually is, is saying, I desire something that I don't have the current resources to obtain, but I'm going to obtain it anyway because I want it. That's that's the cause. And there are people here in our church, um, we just refer to the financial discipleship team, that understand that and get that position. That is a difficult position. I'm not scolding you if you're in that position today. It's not my goal to shame you or scold you, it's to help understand some of the source behind that. But there is help available, and there are people that are patient and understanding, compassionate, that want to help you, Um, want to help you however we can, if that's where you find yourself. Cultivating contentment in God starts with realizing everything is a gift from God. That's why I read you the prologue. The Ten Commandments don't start with have no other gods. They start with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It starts with, you couldn't do anything under Pharaoh's power except what he told you to do. You had no possessions. He owned everything, and I miraculously brought you out of Pharaoh's command into a land that I gave you to steward for my glory. It is saying, look, you could do nothing to help yourself, but because of my kindness, I freed you. And in a much greater way, Jesus leads the new Exodus, which is not the splitting of water for our freedom, but is his death and resurrection so that we can be free from the power of sin. We too know the freedom of God through Jesus Christ and through what he's done for us in the gospel. We have been freed from the slavery of sin so that now we can find our life in him without having to look elsewhere without having to imagine life elsewhere, without having to fantasize about life with him or with her or in that house or in that job. We can really find our life in him. We can find our contentment in him because he has freed us from slavery, not physical slavery in Egypt, the slavery of the power of darkness over our hearts. And so while we'll never be perfect, we can now in the grace of God, begin to say no to coveting and yes to Jesus. We can begin to experience contentment in what He has provided. As our desire for Him increases, our coveting of people and things decreases, and we find ourselves freer and freer and freer to obey Him. Free from the slavery of what I wish I had, what I want I had, what I want, what I need. I love the verse in Hebrews thirteen five. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content, there's the word, be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now you may look at it, how does that go together? Don't love money, he's always there. What he's saying is, don't desire and chase money as a God. Be content with what you have, because you have me. That's what he's saying. I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. Money will leave you. Your contentment will leave you quickly if you're not satisfied in Christ because whatever you have, you'll become dissatisfied with it. You get that toy from that toddler, well, guess what? There's another toy right over there that you don't have. And you get that one, and guess what? You can't hold anymore. And it's just this (laughs) aching discontent. But if we are free from coveting the love of money and content with what we have, we have him. He will never forsake us. He is more than enough is what he says. How do we apply this? Man, I'm going to be super brief and tell you, go to some other places to work on application. I kind of laid it out here best I could, um, but I'm going to be very brief on this. The first application is to ask this question of your soul, whose grass am I looking at? Am I looking on that side of the fence or am I taking inventory of what God is providing me and thanking him for it? You know, some of us, the way we grow, the way we put to death contentment is bringing to life gratitude to God. Rob, I was out sick last week, but I watched the message and Rob did a great job laying out um, a life uh, life in God's word for the coming year. Very motivating. I have no fruit to eat at the end of this message. I'm, um, but he uh, he laid that out really well. And I thought, He did a great job saying there's many different ways you encounter God's Word and can encounter God's Word this year. One thing I wanted to say that could be a part of that is maybe writing down daily as you read God's Word, something you're grateful for from God, uh, that you learned about God or that He provided for you. Some of us need to have a gratefulness, gratitude journal. We're writing down regularly what God has provided, connecting it to Him. And uh, that begins to tune our mind to think, what do I have that's a gift and what am I, not what am I looking for that I don't have? Let me make a book recommendation for you. Um, I didn't work on this until late in the week, so uh, they're not out there. We didn't order these books. But uh, one book I want to recommend to you is a book called um, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's probably the only book titled that, so if you get Amazon, you can find that title, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The author is Jeremiah Burroughs. He wrote it in the 1600s. Now, every old book's not good, but if a book is still in print 400 years later talking about Christian contentment, it's probably worth our read rather than the latest thing that's the hot flash for 30 days or the webinar over here. Or the con- Man, that stuff's coming and going, but I found when I can read something that's been used by Christians for Four centuries. Uh, there's often truth there, and he's, he's mined this well. Uh, he was uh, British. Uh, the rare jewel of Christian contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs. Lastly, and I'm done, take proactive action to steward your resources. So, first of all, is take inventory. What do you have? And then begin to take action to steward your resources. So think, how can I be a better steward, a more faithful employee of the jobs given me, God's given me, not dreaming about the new job? How can I today, I may have a new job, I don't know, but today I'm here. So how can I be faithful where I'm planted? How can I be faithful in my marriage? How can we grow as a couple instead of comparing ourselves or imagining what another spouse is like? And with your finances as well, how can I faithfully manage what God has entrusted to me financially? Recommendation here, the best book I've read on money and the heart and the financial part of this is a book called Redeeming Money by Paul Tripp. All our financial counselors use that book. It's used as a resource in some of our classes Uh, But thats if you've not read that, Redeeming Money by Paul Tripp, that's a modern book. It's not 400 years old, but I think people will be reading it decades from now. I think it's that good. A very helpful book by Paul Tripp, Redeeming Money. You can also very practically attend the upcoming seminar. We saw it just now, Resetting Your Money Mindset, February 3rd. Resetting Your Money Mindset. That would be a way to go and take stock and begin to learn and to be faithful in stewarding, focusing on what you have, not dreaming about what you don't have being faithful in your own yard and saying, okay, this is what I have. This is our income. This is our expenses. How are we we using that faithfully? And then they announced today that there's a class following that on Sundays, biblical money management class. So you could do the seminar and then do a class if you'd like. Um, And just either as new material for you or as a tune-up. If you've never been through this material, I'd really recommend it. If you have been, like Caleb said, it could be time for a tune-up. So it's, it's working on our desires so that we're content in God, grateful for what Christ has done for us in the cross and resurrection, seeing his mercy and grace to us, finding our joy in him. It's that part of the heart equation. And then it's practically, as we continue to thank God and live content contently, it is then managing what we have faithfully in the various, ab, uh, various resources that he has given us.